your lived experiences raising black children in our world. Join us. Steiner, and we will get your calls. You have 410-319-8888. Ernest, we're going to get your call next. We'll talk about what Lori. Lori called in to say she wanted to talk to Kay about her kids in the library, but she's not in line. She's no longer in line, right? So, so Lori's still in line as well? Oh, she is? Okay. Just checking to make sure I understood. So, uh, Kay and Lester, before we go back to the phones here, to Ernest and and Lori, um, respond to what Michael was saying. Go ahead, Lester. I'll go after you. Yeah. So, uh, so yes, there are uh, there are all types of resources. So I'll, I'll just use an example from uh, from my kids. So my oldest son, he's just finishing his he just finished his first year at uh, University of Michigan. Right. My uh, him and his him and uh, his mom's uh, me and his mom's alma mater. And when we applied to Michigan, um, when he applied and he got accepted, they didn't offer him any financial aid at all. And we were undergoing a, tra- a family transition, and we didn't have a lot of resources. And I told Kamari to to actually go to, to 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 press them on financial aid. And one of the things I'm really proud about my kids is that all of them, to a wit, they're they're pretty good at standing up for themselves. They're uh they're they're really you know they can look you in the eye whether you're six or sixty four you know like the brother on the phone. Uh, and he kept on pressing him, even though they were giving him a runaround. They kept on pressing him. I mean, he kept on pressing him to the point where they're like, yeah, we made a mistake. And then they gave him. Everything. I just had to pay a little bit that first year. So that's an example of how the resources exist if you just kind of know where they are. The challenge with articulating that as a solution for an entire people is that we've got a range of capacity and we've got uh, we've got a range of capacity and those resources require resources to get. So if we actually were to articulate that as a strategy, what we end up with is a circumstance in which families like mine end up with the lion's share of those resources and families like the ones that live across the sh- that, that, uh, that uh, live in neighborhoods like the ones I grew up in would have no access to those resources at all. It would increase right. rather than decrease. Uh, inequality in black communities. And I, th- and I think that there has to be a conversation, maybe not today, but one of the conversations we need to have is what black wealth means and how you define that. People like they have this trillion-dollar black wealth. Yeah, America, no, ask Jared Paul right. about, what, about right. black but wealth. But we need to really talk about what that yeah. really means. Right, because I think day, there's, a, there's a, a range there. I just want right. to very quickly right. say with this notion of, of advocating uh, for yourself and learning how to do that, I think it is very difficult uh, to advocate. My, my boys are, are in 10th and 8th grade, and we made the decision early on that we wanted to send them to the independent schools. Coming in the Baltimore City, I heard about these schools that were here. I heard about, you know, the Gilmans and Calvers and McDonough, kind of the schools within the school system buried. And the biggest impediment for me was trying to figure out how do you apply? How do you get in? Oh, yeah, yeah, how do you yeah. figure out? I mean, how do you navigate? Because it's not something you could just simply go and pull down. And I remember when Kofi, my oldest son, went and did his testing at one of the schools and he tested off the chart. And when they sent us how much it was going to cost, I was like, well, we need to kind of rethink this because I know what I'm sending you. I don't have to take every crumb you're giving me just because you think I'm hungry. I understand that having him in your school will benefit your school. We can continue to homeschool him we will be fine if you want him just like with your son having to advocate lester 
If you want Kofi, then you need to be able to meet this bottom line figure here Mm -hmm. because I understand what you're getting. I mean, you're getting the best and brightest that I have to offer, Mm -hmm. and I need to understand that. And so when I work with parents about advocating, it's like turn the table. You are not the victim. You don't have to take everything they're giving to you. You can demand things for your child. You have to be the first advocate. What I tell my sons, I am there for you. I will stand in front of you and speak out for you when it's that time. And then I'll get behind you when you have learned how to do that for yourself. And that's something I work with parents. Be the advocate. Go into the school system. When you see that there's a problem, Mm -hmm. you have to be the one saying, we don't have to take this. We can transform our schools. So I think part of that advocacy is we talk about individual advocacy, which Esther mentioned. And then we talk about advocacy as a community and then advocacy as a race and being able to tap into those things. Let's jump to the phones here. 410-319-8888. Ernest, you're on the air. Welcome. Thank you for taking my call. Thanks for calling. After I retired from law enforcement, I worked as a resource officer at one of the public schools in Northwest Baltimore, and it was something, really. But we had a group of teachers that were, the majority of them was dedicated. And then if you get to know the students and be able to call them by name and explain to them as law enforcement, retired law enforcement officer, they tended to listen. And, you know, when I was in uniform, I made it a habit if I had a school on my post, I would go to the different schools, talk to the principal, walk the halls, and do the things of this nature. But when I saw, and I had all my kids uh, were blessed to go to college. But in, in, in one instance that I realized that one of the, the children was a musician and wanted to go to Peabody. And they gave, if you went to Peabody right out of high school, then you would get a free ride. And I remember that the dean gave some lame excuse that he couldn't go there. He had to go to a um, community college of Baltimore, which was a good thing, in my opinion. But when he went back to uh, Peabody and was able to get in and graduate, then you were saddled with all this debt. But the most painful thing, the most painful thing to me is when I saw that school, Keo, the Keepers, is a Catholic school where the parents had paid for the girls to go to school and this priest was sexually assaulting mm. The female uh, students down there, and even alleged was responsible for killing one of the nuns. Right, right. And we, yeah, right. That's true. I mean, this, this is, and still nobody, the priest wasn't sanctioned, the, the archbishop wasn't sanctioned. It was taking these girls out and introducing them to all mm. kinds of individuals where they would have sex. I mean, can you imagine? the individuals that was destroyed mentally and physically. And these, are, these weren't black children. These were white children. Right. So, so we're trying to get into this question of black parenting. So could, what, what is, could bring it around back to that, if you would, Ernest. He was trying to get to what? Our conversations about black parenting, parenting black children. So, what, what, so. Well, in my, in my opinion, um, Black parenting, you have to let your 
children know right from the start what this country is really about. It's racism and white supremacy. And that you have to work hard and study hard and and, and hopefully you're blessed to be able to accomplish your goal. Mm. But it's never easy for black people. I mean, it's always when you go back uh, you introduced uh, you you uh, you uh, interviewed a lady many years ago on your show, Esther McCready. I don't know if you remember that. Yep, yep. She was the first African American female to go to the University of Maryland School of Nursing. Right. And and it was that that interview stayed with me. You know, so you know, being being black, biracial or anything, I mean, it's really difficult, and it's absolutely difficult now because things are changing. The streets are dangerous. Uh, it's a lot of it's a lot of uh, hatred, and it shouldn't be that way in this country. But that's the way it's always been. Eric, it's always good to hear your voice and your thoughts. Appreciate the call as usual. Four one zero three one nine eighty eight eighty eight. Let's go to Laurie in Baltimore. You're on the air. Welcome. Hi, good morning, good morning. everyone. Good morning. Uh, Dr. K, I can certainly relate to you. As a single parent, I raised my son in one of our favorite places, and he still talks about it till this day, even though he's 25, we <laughs> stayed in the library. We lived at the library, and I found so many resources from using the library because it was hard raising my son. Mm-hmm. He went to private school from pre-K until eighth grade. After that, it was really, really tight to send him to private school for high school. So I sent him to Baltimore City Schools. At first I was upset, but I got over it because when he graduated, he graduated at the top of his class. He received many scholarships. (laughs) I mean, many scholarships. (laughs) He got accepted to every school he applied for, but because he chose to make a to make a long decision, I sent him to Coppin State. Nice. Where he thrived. When he got into Coppin, he received more scholarships. It's what you want for your child, mm-hmm. and you will work hard for it. And that child will also work hard for it as a single black nice. parent. And I understand where you're coming from, but if you send your kids to public schools, trust me. They can receive those scholarships. You have to go talk to the counselors. You have to be friends with the principals. And you also have to be friends with the uh, teachers. Now, my son's a teacher, and he's trying to teach his students to do as I did for him. So that's all I wanted to say. And I hope everyone has a great day. Thank you. Oh, Thank, you, you so Thank you so much. I, I completely agree with what the caller was saying here about the ways that we have to, to dream for our children. I know um, in listening to Ernest, I, I know it's difficult. I, I'm very aware of white supremacy. I mean, I talk about it with my boys all the time, except that I am trying. And, and this is something just I'm being very transparent about here. I am trying to change my ongoing narrative with my sons that I've been spending a lot of time, particularly since the, you know, the, this whole idea of you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, when my husband and I sat down and it's the first op-ed I ever wrote, wrote talking about having the talk with my sons, that I was trying to raise my sons the way I was raised, where you know we, we were traveling and, and going away for the summer and, and doing all the wonderful middle class things that I thought would be great to kind of help them to achieve, but I was not prepared 
preparing them adequately to deal with this system. And when Trayvon Martin was killed, I said, you know what, I have been really protecting you and I should have been preparing you. We have to talk about race as a real issue in this household. So what did that talk look like for you? Well, we sat down and it was, we had my older son, he was, you know, 10, 11 years old. We had my youngest son there who was eight or nine years old. And my husband started by talking about his experience. He grew up in North Carolina. What did racism look like in his life? What did it feel like? How did he learn what to do? Where do you go when you're on the playground when something happens? What happens when you get old enough and you're walking through a store and you're getting followed? How should we think and talk about what's going on with Trayvon Martin? We begin to look at social media. That's the first time that social media became the driving force behind this activism. And we started having small conversations to help them to be able to deal with it because it was changing everything. Now, I will say that we've been doing this now for three, four, I mean, I changed all of my research, as you know, Mark, all I started talking about, no more 19th century black women. I said, if I can't use my work to help my boys survive, then I'm not doing anything right. But what is happening now is I have been spending time teaching my boys how to survive in this system. They need to learn how to thrive in it as well. Like we need to stop teaching black kids how to get low, how to survive, how to just stay alive, how to get out of the way, how to kowtow and say, yes, sir, no, sir, just so you don't shoot me. How are we teaching them how to thrive? Because it's this, this is one life they have to live. So if your whole life is spent just trying to stay alive, then you're not taking full benefits of what this experience should be like. Yeah, you know it's funny. I never, um, I never had to talk with my kids. Um, uh, and again, I have uh, two girls, I have three boys. I, I, I kind of on purpose never had that talk because the way that talk is articulated, or the way the talk really uh, is usually articulated, it really is a matter of kind of subjugating yourself in order to, to I guess, live for the next encounter. Yes. And, and to a certain extent, that's education. In a certain extent, that's class. I was like. But to a certain extent, it's politics. I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to teach. Uh, I'm not going to teach my kids that. Now they already know, you know, because you know, because of what I do, you know, they already know the racial dynamics of of policing. They already know all that stuff. Um, but I never, I, on purpose, I was like, you know, I'm not going to tell them. I'm not going to tell them to do any of that stuff. Any of the stuff I I had to do, like the whole put your hands up where they can see them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole. I didn't. I haven't taught them none of. I haven't taught them none of that stuff. Like on purpose. I'm like, no, because that is a narrative. You know, for to the yes. extent that there are narratives that actually do debilitate. That is a narrative that kind of hamstrings our ability to make larger political claims. And then that is a narrative that can have all types of individual effects, just as far as dealing with authority in general. So let's see what our listeners are thinking at four one zero three one nine eighty eight eighty eight. Let me just go right there. Hank, you're on the air. Welcome. How are you doing today, Mr. Good morning, Hank. Um, okay, so you know me, right? You know yes. I don't have a high school education and all of that, right? But I'm a very open-minded man. So you are. my son sat down and he told me this, right? He said, thank you for making me sit back and watch all of the documentaries that you watch. Thank you for when you go around, you say Watch how I act and respond around this person and watch what they do. Mm -hmm. They're going to do this, this, and this, right? Since conception of or since knowledge of my children, right, my job is to teach and enlighten them on how to navigate this earth, right? My children all graduated school, even though I didn't, because I pressed them. Right? Because I showed them, look, 
you see this guy right here, he may be Ethiopian, he may be Chinese, he may be Jewish, or he may be Russian, but there is something to learn about him, about his mm. culture, which will enlighten you on your culture. I may never be able to pay for you to go on a trip out of the country to learn for a year, right? But you can learn from watching other ethnic cities, other ethnicities, and, and stuff like that. You can learn how to maintain in culture, right? I constantly teach my grandchildren and my children while I'm around them. I'm 50, so I'm learning how to be 50. My kids will so I'm still teaching them how to be 50 at 27, at 30, at 29. My job is never over. It's how I teach them to circumnavigate themselves. I tell my daughter, don't tell my grandchild or keep saying around my grandchild, you a bad bee because you're not a bad bee. You're a god. And if you are, I'm raising God of God. So what you're feeding them. The very words that come out of your mouth are food. What you're feeding them is teaching and nourishing them. So if you yourself take it in your mind that you are raising the next up and coming. I used to call my grandson the president until I watched what Donald Trump did. You know what I told my grandson yesterday? What's that? You are no longer the president. You are now the leader of the free world. Nice. Is it, like, I'm, 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 yeah, I'm not the anymore. Yeah. You're the leader of the free world. That's who you are. Yeah. Hank, it's always good to hear your voice, brother. And the next time we do this parenting show in the next few weeks, you're going to have to come on as one of the guests. Um, because you know, I think this, because, and before we go back to once get this final call on today, I mean, we were all alluding to this, mm-hmm. but as Hank was just saying, Hank, who's a hardworking man, done time, come out, taking care of his kids, is really a, an amazing citizen, doing really good work in the community, yeah. living off Greenmount Avenue, doesn't have the same options of where to send a child, yeah. mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so, that, that, so when you're navigating that, you have to wrap your arms around your children in a really different way yeah. That's right. for survival. I agree. Right, which is this is, and and so the, so you so your kids don't have to struggle for survival, so they get to a, a different place. Like the young woman I met, who's just graduating Goucher, was because her grandmother put her arms around her and shoved her through yeah. the world to get her through, uh, what she had to get through to become to, to, to give her a chance in this world. You know, they, people don't. I don't. People don't get that a lot on this planet. Hogan doesn't get it. When they cut education from Baltimore City, they don't get it. I think that's where the the narrative uh, around teachers and and teachers acting in locus parentis comes in. Uh, Because sometimes, I mean, I know with with students I taught, I can only draw upon that experience in working with parents, uh, with parents who are working two and three jobs just to, to keep a roof. Uh, for their children, to make sure they had shoes, to make sure they got to school every day, that there was no hugs, not because they didn't want to give a hug, but because you were leaving out as I was coming in from a job, or you were getting up, your siblings getting into school, you were doing that while I'm working through the night shift, but that I know in the school where I work, that was something that we really took very seriously. How can we also be that net for the children that are under our care, that if they need a hug, that we can be there to be a support system. I I think I want to just go back very quickly to something that Lester said in the little bit of time we have left. 
about this debilitating narrative that we tell. I'm talking particularly about our sons. I know that, you know, the Say Her Name campaign and really being clear about what's happening to to black women and black girls as well with brutality. Uh, That conversation that we had with our sons, because they were both in the independent school, they're they're going to school where they are being taught every day as if they are truly the next leaders of the free world. I mean, you're talking going into a school where every day the head of the school is shaking your hand and looking you in the face and you have to look them in the eyes and saying good morning that they were in that environment where they were beginning to think that they were entitled and privileged, but they were not understanding that there is another narrative that they had to right. be aware of when they were stopped by the police. Have a thought, I'm going to try to get on the caller in here before the end of the hour. If we yeah, 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 and, and in fact, as I think about it, so the other narrative that I never told, for example, my girls, is, um, is I never had them feel as if they were, one, I didn't, I never made them feel as if they were different, that they had differential capacities than their boys. And then secondarily, to the extent I, I talked about this, and to be fair, I did this very little because I'm, I'm still kind of a conservative dad. It's to the extent I talked, we talked about their bodies, even indirectly, it would, I never made them feel uncomfortable about their bodies. Right. So if you think about and there's a very specific narrative that we give the boys that debilitates them. And then there's a very specific narrative, not necessarily about police, but about sex and sexuality and bodies that we give to girls that actually debilitates them. Right. Though and those individual narratives are separate and distinct from these larger structures where you can actually affect somebody for a lifetime. Yep. Based on how you deal with them, and then all, and then layered on top of that, disciplining practices, which we never even talked about, which we, right. which we will get to, because I think that's an issue that's that, issue. that raises yeah. lots of yeah. of questions and people and arguments. We will get to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in a, in a coming conversation, we should continue this over the course of the next couple of months. Let's get one more caller in here, can we? Caroline, you're on the air. Welcome. Hi, um, I I think I uh, I, I know I uh, successfully uh, raised three girls in a pub- using the public school system. Um, and the, the, the thing that I, I think is the most important is presence. So one thing about it, one thing is that I had a flexible job. I made sure I could pop up at PTA meetings, talk to teachers, sit in, you know, and and sacrifice too, sacrifice and expectation. Because what what I found out quickly with my first child is that um, the low expectations that others have of our children. I learned that in first grade. <laughs> first grade, so. It, it followed right on through with my other three, which um, one has a JD from Maryland, one has is working on a PhD from Maryland in public health, another one is uh, went to Yale and um, is at Duke in medical school, all from public school. Mm. I don't I don't believe in a lot of uh, camps when when it was time for their brains to take a break in the summertime, they got to take a break, <laughs> and, and right? it absolutely yeah, I did. Uh-huh. I mean. I, because we were so aware of class position, uh, GPAs, I mean, 5.3, 5, you know, uh, all these numbers that they have to keep in mind throughout the school year, SAT scores, X, all these scores. But um, I think a lot of people ought to also ought to uh, understand it. If you can get your kid up in that 5% that, of the class, I mean, the sky's the limit. I mean, we just had to sit back and figure out what schools and what scholarships to take we picked from, um, we, uh, I remember we took no scholarships from the school itself because there were so many outside uh, scholarships with my last child. Um, and, you know, from there she went to Yale, then from there she 
she gap year at Harvard. This right. There she, uh, and this is all public school. The presence, you know, your expectation of your children. Um, that um, I, I don't, I didn't focus so much on what others thought of them as much as what we as a people are are capable of. I've I just focused on what, how good we are as a people. You know what we have accomplished. What I showed them. What you know, show them what we have accomplished. And they, I mean, I didn't sit around giving them that race. Um, and some, and yet I believe we're we, we consider ourselves a rather militant family. But I didn't give them. Uh, you know, there was the, 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 I, you know they were children. Right. That and I believe in sports. So I'm making sure they play a sport, a music, a language. <laughs> And all those things are them. critical. We, we're just about out of time. I do appreciate this call um, a great deal, and I, and I do appreciate the panelists here. I think we really need to come back over the next two months and kind of revisit some, a bunch of different levels from all the things we heard from our listeners today and, and bring a different uh, uh, other people into this discussion uh, from experiences across class lines, across the city, about what it means and how to do it. You can see this from the callers. There's such variance which is important yeah. mm-hmm. because there's no one way. There's no one way. There's no one way. And we all do what we can to wrap our hands around our kids to see them through this. I want to thank you both as uh, friends and as parents and as colleagues here for coming in today. Uh, Dr. Lester Spence, Dr. Kate Whitehead, good to have you both in the house. Thank Means you very much. to have you both oh, here. Thanks for being here. And we're going to take a short break and remind you when we come back, we're going to be looking at Confederate monuments and more. So please stay with us. Don't go away. <laughs> 